went to um, the University of Tennessee for my undergrad and master's, and then out to Oklahoma State for my uh, Ph.D. So, oh, yeah. Yeah. I'm actually from Tennessee, from the Chattanooga area. Grew up around there. And then my dad's family is actually from Knoxville, so um, went to school here and then ended up back here for uh, my career, which I'm pretty lucky to be able to do. Yeah. So what got you into uh, forestry and whatnot? Well, really, it's just the love of outdoors and science. I mean, I didn't have anybody, um, you know, that really uh, mentored me when I was young or anything, but I did like to get out in the woods and backpack and camp and, you know, make a fire and roast hot dogs and all that stuff and um, just always loved being outside. And I was looking at all the different uh, career paths and degrees, and I said, well, forestry sounds fun. So that's kind of what happened. <laughs> yeah. I mean, to, to be in forestry, you kind of not only have, like to, you know, play in the woods, but kind of work in the woods too, right? Yeah. Yeah, it's great. So can you describe your current research? Yeah. I mean, I'm not sure, you know, exactly what you're most interested in, but predominantly I study planting hardwood trees and in particular uh, American chestnut and oak species. And both of those species are in the same family, the Fagaceae family. So they're somewhat related to each other. Um, and I look at all the different aspects of what goes into planting from everything from the size of the acorn to uh, the seedling that you get out of the nursery. And then after you plant it, what kind of environment do you need to be putting it in in terms of forest management activities and how do you keep the deer off of it um, if you can or get the deer to not uh, gnaw on it? And um, effects of prescribed burning and herbicide um, and all of those things. So we've got a pretty broad program, um, and I really uh, enjoy what I do, and I'm glad to be able to to do it. And most of my uh, work is in the southern Appalachians in uh, Virginia, Tennessee, Kentucky, North Carolina and Alabama, and we're hoping to maybe expand out a little bit uh, this in coming uh, two years. How is the so deer issue kind of down there? Sorry? How is the deer issue down there? Well, you know, it's funny you were talking about deer because we have a lot of deer. Um, even on my property here in Rockford, we actually, my husband killed one this weekend, which was great because um, we like to eat venison, and my dogs sure like to eat, you know, the, the scraps and things that are left over. Um, it's variable where you go in the woods here. Sometimes you get a, you know, high deer density. Other places it's not so bad. It's nothing like, you know, what I hear people experiencing in, um, like, Pennsylvania, uh, where you, like, can't even leave a tree out overnight or the deer will eat it. It's not that bad here, but there are places where you have to consider, you know, some sort of mitigation measure to keep the, the deer off the trees. So is there anything regenerating your woods naturally? Or is there they're pretty much a browse line everywhere you go? No. I mean, we have plenty of natural regeneration. Um, there are some areas where you can see browse line, uh, but, you know, we don't necessarily have to plant trees to get regeneration back it's just if you want oak or other species like chestnut of course you have to plant trees because chestnuts are gone um 
in terms of, you know, being a functional component of the forest anyway. And uh, with oak, you know, we get oak regeneration uh, in the forest, but it's small. And then getting it to be of a size that's considered competitive um, is the problem. And so that's where the planting comes in. Okay, so what's um, what's out competing it coming up naturally? Well, in our forest, uh, the big competitor down here is tulip poplar. I'm not sure if you guys have poplar up there. We do, but oh, it's, you do? Okay. it's rare. It only grows in very well-drained, really calcium-rich coves. Oh, okay. And in southern well, areas, only in the lower elevations of the mountains. Right, I gotcha. So poplar is uh, very common. It's probably the most common um, tree species when you look at areas that you're doing some sort of regeneration harvest in. Um, you get poplar seed uh, that comes up as germinant seed. You get poplar sprouts. They're very competitive, the most competitive uh, trees in the woods. If you're higher in elevation in the Blue Ridge Mountains, um, you're going to get birch as a, as a competitor. Uh, of course, maple, uh, red maple is a, is a competitor, and sugar maple, which we do have some uh, sugar maple, especially on uh, the areas that we would uh, call like the Cumberland Plateau area. Um, and middle, more middle Tennessee area, you get a lot of sugar maple. Um, and those are probably the main competitors. I mean, you get other stuff, and you get, we, we have a whole suite of species, of course. You know, we're incredibly diverse. Down here, you know, you can you can easily have 20 to 30 tree species on a on any given site, but poplar is the one we're probably the most concerned about. Yeah, I would I would say like yellow poplars or tulip poplar, same thing. Uh, it's kind of like the southern version of sugar and red maple. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah, it's more like sugar maple. I mean, where where it grows here, at least, it's just very rich sites, really good soil. Yeah, yeah, it grows. Uh, Predominantly on the better sites, but it can also grow on moderate productive, you know, moderate productivity sites as well. Um, and that's where you have the issue with the oak regenerating um, on your more poor quality sites. The oaks, you know, tend to be dominant, and you don't really have a problem. But uh, it's where those you've got those moderate, you know, kind of mid quality to very high quality sites. That's where you run into the oak regeneration issue and. And I listened to one of your podcasts with Heather Alexander, and, um, you know, she kind of went over some of those, uh, you know, problems of why we have oak regeneration problems. And I think she, she did a good job on, on that, explaining it. Yeah, it's pretty interesting to see, you know, studying uh, how wet a site is beneath oak compared to, say, maple. You know, just the way they funnel mm-hmm. water from their from their stem flow and everything into the, uh, into the surrounding vegetation and stuff is pretty interesting. Um, it's, yeah, it's drier. Yeah. It's drier under oak forest than it is under maple. Mm-hmm. It's pretty cool. Yeah, the oaks or the maples actually make the sites wetter and more difficult to burn. Um, they mesify it, as the term people use, mystication. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. We've had uh, Dr. Mark Abrams on. He he kind of coined that phase that phrase rather uh, from mm-hmm. Penn State University. So. Let's back up and discuss what led to today's lack of oak and chestnut. We have discussed it on the radio show, but we want to get your perception on it. Yeah, so could you give us some context? Yeah, sure. I mean, that's a that's like the million dollar question, you know, because you go out in the woods and you see all of these 
beautiful oak trees and and you're thinking, oh, you know, this is what we should get back, you know, because there's oaks here and they've been here. And then you go and you have a disturbance like a, you know, tornado or, or you manage a disturbance like a shelterwood harvest or something like that, and you don't get the oak back very rarely. Um, and so you go from a stand that's like 80% oak down to a stand that's like 0% oak, you know. And the reason I think is it's um, multifaceted. I think, um, you know, you first of all have got to look at it in terms of where we are in time. So, you know, oak's been around for, you know, millennia um, in eastern North America. Uh, and, of course, it's not always been that common here. Uh, it's gotten more common, um, you know, in the last probably five to 6,000 years is when oaks kind of came to be more important along with chestnut. And chestnut was actually kind of a late, you know, late arriver in terms of um, being here. It probably became most dominant around two 2,000 years ago. Um, and then, you know, in more modern times, you had uh, Native Americans who actively managed forests through burning, through tending the forest, cutting for firewood, cutting for other wood products, um, you know, cutting and burning to make um, to make forests more uh, open for, for their hunting practices and those kind of things. So they did burn and they did tend the forest very heavily. Um, to what extent, we don't totally know, but we think it was pretty significant. Um, and then, you know, especially when the Native Americans became more agriculturally minded um, and had maize growing, you know, they cleared forests. Um, and then, you know, you've had a period of, you had periods of drought um, throughout history that probably favored oak forests. And we don't have those kind of significant droughts anymore. We have not had them um, in the last hundred years. When you look at tree ring history and, you know, reconstructing climate with that, you just don't have those long, drawn-out droughts that we had, you know, 500 years ago. Um, in the last hundred years, it's been particularly wet in the eastern part of North America. And then, you know, what really happened, I think, that created the force we have today is you had this massive logging event um, along with uh, domesticated animals coming in around 100 to 120 or more years ago. That, you know, massive clearing, massive fires, lots of grazing by animals and heavy disturbance to the land that we cannot replicate today. We would not want to replicate that today. Um, and that created favorable conditions for oak species because they like to be, they like heavy disturbance for the most part. Um, and so I think that is kind of what led to a lot of the forest we see today. And then now we kind of want to get at least some of these oak species back and we're struggling. Um, and there's been, you know, I'm on, I think we're on like the fifth round of a generation of scientists in my work unit alone trying to figure this out. And we are getting closer, but we're still not quite there yet. What do you mean by closer? Well, I think we have more understanding scientifically and ecologically about what's going on out there in the forest and how things are um, interacting to create the conditions we have today. 
and then also studying the management, um, what, what we can do as managers to uh, improve conditions for oak species. And I think we're a little bit closer to getting the results that we really want to see um, in terms of using more refined prescriptions or uh, in terms of civicultural prescriptions. So I think we understand now, you know, 20 years ago, when I first started my career with the Forest Service, people were just, you know, oh, we just need to burn. We just need to burn more. Um, and you still kind of hear some of that, you know, oh, if you just have more burns, you'll get oak. And now we kind of understand, no, it takes more than burning. You have to have some sort of disturbance to the overstory and probably a series of disturbances to keep the understory oaks competitive. Well, it's like, and it's figuring yeah. out. I'm sorry. Go no, go ahead. It's just kind of figuring out that sequence of events and the intensity of the event of those events, coupled with, um, you know, what's practical. You know, because um, we can like grow banana trees in the Arctic, but we can't do that practically, right? <laughs> so. Right. It's kind of figuring out what's the balance between how much we want to put into this management versus, you know, how many oaks can we get back. I mean, I wonder about the fire. I mean, you know, I, I've gone to, uh, you know, trainings and stuff with, with fire and, and oak hickory have deeper root systems and, and all that compared to, say, maple trees and stuff that have shallower roots. But, I mean, when someone says, well, you just have to burn, I feel like they're right and wrong. And correct me on mm -hmm. this, but how much fire? I mean, you, you can't expect to just burn for 30 years and replicate what maybe Native Americans did for thousands of years. You know what I mean? Right. That, there's a lot of burning over a long, long period of time. Mm -hmm. Of course, yeah. you know, we have to talk yeah. about advanced generation, what's there before you burn. But it's like, yeah, okay, well, you, you know, burning once, twice, three times. That's, I mean, over 20 years, we can't expect to get old kickery and chestnut or whatever back. I don't know. What do you right. think? Yeah, I think it's uh, it takes it's going to take many of our tools in our toolbox, and fire is one of them. Um, I think our forests, uh, for lack of a better term, right now are, are out of whack in terms of, you know, maybe what um, historically occurred on the landscape for thousands of years. And you know, you also have to keep in mind things change, right? So you can't just go back to one thing, one state of things. You know, you have to keep in mind that the forests are always changing whether we are changing them or not they're going to change um so i think fire is definitely important i think it's a process and you have to look at it that way so it's not like oh just just put fire out there and we'll get oak you know you have to look at it well you're burning because you're reducing the, the leaf litter which is more conducive to oaks germinating you're burning maybe to put more nutrients on the ground which is also conducive to oak trees taking up those nutrients producing more flowers in the spring and then producing more acorns you're burning because you're trying to decrease the competitive ability of, of species like red maple but even then you know red maple sprouts prolifically i mean i don't know about it there but down here you can burn maples eight nine ten times and they're still going to keep sprouting um so, so you're getting a lot of red maple down there huh oh yeah that's amazing. Yeah. I mean, look how far you are south, and we have the same problem. Yes. Yeah, it sprouts yes. tremendously. It's everywhere. Yeah. 
It, it does sprout. <laughs> when there was a huge fire, a few thousand acres, which for in our area is a lot. Um, mm-hmm. You know, the overstory is pitch pine. So just to tell you how much fire has mm-hmm. been in this one area, the Shangam Ridge. Uh, a lot of sassafras, oak, and uh, mountain laurel. So high fire return mm-hmm. level historically. Blueberry, low, low bush. But it came back with red maple because it was just one fire, you know, mm-hmm. with yeah. a high deer browse keep, issue. So They'll keep sprouting. Um, they kind of, like, create so many. I mean, they can create literally, you know, dozens and dozens of sprouts off of one red maple stem that might be, you know, let's say it's four inches in diameter at breast height. And that, if you top kill that tree with fire, it'll send up, you know, 60, 70 sprouts. And then you can burn it again and it'll send up more. You know, and so the key is to kind of get it burnt at the right time as well. So if you, and this is really hard to do, practically speaking, if you burn them when the leaves on the maples are starting to bud out, but the oaks are still dormant, you have a better kill on your maple stems. Um, But that's really hard to implement because the burn days are short, you know, and maybe there's like, a bad fire season that year, and instead of putting prescribed fire on the ground, they have to go fight fires. You know, I mean, there's just all these issues that you have to consider. So I don't know what the total answer is with fire, but I do think we know more about it than we did 20 years ago, and I think we've learned that you have to do more than just burn. You know, you have to couple it with other types of management like you know, harvesting and herbicide to get, you know, your oaks to be competitive. And we're not trying to, like, make a stand that's 100% oak, right? Like, that's not the goal. We're trying to enrich that stand with oak to some level, you know. And I think that's another thing we've learned is we can't get the oak forest back that we have now um, when they are disturbed. But we can probably move it to get more than 100% uh, tulip poplar, you know. So maybe we'll get 20 oaks per acre instead of 80, but at least it's 20 (laughs) and not zero, right? Like that would be a success. You mentioned a little while ago that maybe historic droughts, long-term droughts, help promote some of this oak. How long are we talking, 10-plus years or a hundred years? What is the time frame on that? Yeah, I mean, some of the work that's been done um, by uh, some other scientists have shown that there is there was this historic these more historically long droughts in the prior four hundred years than in the current one hundred years. So, what they're saying is that these droughts last anywhere from one to ten to twelve years. And they're pretty intense or severe. Um, and nowadays, we think, you know, we think droughts, we, we're seeing maybe more severe droughts. But when you look at it in a historical context, the droughts that we've seen in the last, you know, even 50 years are really not that severe um, in comparison to what was historically occurring five or 400 years ago. And I don't know exactly you know, the reasoning of this, if this is related to climate change um, or if it's just a, a bigger shift in uh, these precipitation patterns. But um, clearly it's it's uh, something that 
is causing probably a shift towards more maple forest and more mystification of our forest. Yeah, I mean, the only reason why I'd be skeptical towards that is that in our area, really our forest started to become more, you know, towards mesophytes like red maple and stuff since the 1940s. Really Mm -hmm. when the bluebird pickers stopped burning. I mean, there's a clear demarcation when they stopped burning the Shangam Ridge, despite rainfall and drought, it went towards first sassafras, then, you know, red maple. You know what I yeah. mean? So, I mean, I don't know. I I, I would question that long period drought thing because I, I feel like it could be playing something, but the cultural changes I feel like are way more significant. And it could be. You know, we don't – it's hard to test these things. Um, when you're doing these kind of, you know, reconstructive studies and making hypotheses, it's, it's difficult to test those kind of theories. But, you know, you look at the data and it does show, the data do show that there are these, there were these historic longer droughts and the droughts that we've seen lately are not nearly as, as severe. But I think it's a, not just one thing. It's, yeah. you know, multiple factors that are affecting the change we see in the forest and um, in the case of American chestnut, of course, the big factor is uh, non-native uh, pathogens, notably the um, chestnut blight disease caused by Cryphonectra parasitica. Um, that just, you know, pretty much wiped out that species um, as we know it. You know, it's functionally extinct in our forest now. If you're just tuning in, you're listening to From the Forest. Tonight's topic is restoring oak and chestnut with USDA's Dr. Stacy Clark. So why, why should we care about oak or chestnut um, you know, being reduced or extirpated in some areas? Why, why do these two trees matter? Well, that's a really um, important question, I think. Uh, in, in the case of the American chestnut, you know, there, is, there are plenty of historical accounts of um, people – using chestnut for a variety of reasons. Uh, we don't have a lot of indigenous knowledge uh, left uh, on American chestnut, but there are there is some evidence that indigenous people use chestnut for a variety of reasons, uh, notably food. Of course, it has a, a very edible nut that it, that it produced, and the, the nut crops were actually pretty reliable, unlike um, oaks. You know how oaks, and you guys know this if you're deer hunters, you know you have years where acorns are very abundant and years where they're not abundant at all. It's hard to predict that. It's probably somewhat related to frost events um, in the spring that kill flowers um, that affect the acorn production. And with chestnuts, the flowers come later in the season, so they're typically not um, damaged by late-season frost. So, you know, the chestnut was somewhat more reliable as a mass crop. But it was also used for medicinal purposes uh, by Native Americans. It was also a good fire starter. Uh, it burns very hot. Um, it was, uh, and then you know, during European colonization, of course, uh, people used chestnut for iron furnaces um, to make uh, you know iron, and they also um, used chestnut to make rot-resistant wood products uh, like you know for shingles and fence posts and all of those things, and we don't really know the impact that that tree had in the woods in terms of the ecological impact um, because it kind of fell out before modern forestry research came into existence. So unfortunately, we don't have a lot of research on, you know, what insects were, you know, favored chestnut and how that impacted the food chain and 
and those kind of things. But we can guess, you know, that black bears and deer and probably birds, uh, some birds, bigger birds, use chestnut, um, you know, as a food source. So it was probably the most versatile tree in the woods. It also produced tannin, uh, which was used for the making of leather products. Um, And, you know, it was used for so many reasons. And there's not really another tree that is filled in for that. So we've taken other tree species to kind of fill in the void, but it's taken multiple species to do that. You ever uh, get to eat American chestnut? Uh, sometimes, yeah, I do. And most of the time it's a Chinese variety because, um, you know, there are nut growers in the United States um, and they grow mainly Asian species of chestnuts and they do differ in their taste depending on the genetics of the tree um, and the the breeding of the tree. Um, and that's kind of why we got the blight, actually, is because... People were bringing Asian chestnuts into our country to breed with the American chestnut to produce more um, nuts because the American has, like, a smaller nut and some Asian varieties have larger ones. So they were breeding them together because they wanted a tree that was going to have the larger nuts that produced a lot more of them. It's so such, yeah, it's such a big loss. I mean, I got I got lucky one year, and there was a big forest fire in the middle of the Catskill Forest Preserve uh, from a campfire that got loose up on Cherrytown mm-hmm. Mountain. And from the old sprouts, they sprouted up, and then two or three years later, before they died of blight afterwards, um, they produced. And I, I picked mm-hmm. garbage bags of them, and that was, I mean, that's when it hit me just how important they were because the wildlife in there was just, one, ridiculous. The bear the deer, mm-hmm. everything was in there. But they taste darn good. I mean, really good. Mm-hmm. And you don't have to work yeah. hard to get them. They just open up, and you don't have to have a special nutcracker and crack the code and all this nonsense. So, mm-hmm. big loss. Yeah. I know. It's huge. And, they're yeah, they were very palatable. I mean, unlike acorns, you can eat acorns, but you have to, like, leach them, you know, and, and do this extra work. Um, but with chestnuts, it was, they're, you know, you can just eat them. You can roast them. And eat them, and they're they're delicious. You can use it to make flour and bread, and and all of those good things if you want. Um, and then uh, you know, people I think really actually promoted the chestnut because they um, they wanted more you know food for the for their uh, for themselves, but also food for the game. So they probably planted chestnuts and uh, coppiced them. In other words, they kept them small by cutting them every, you know, 10 years or so um, and kind of kept them in like an orchard coppice-type setting and promoted more nut production that way. Makes sense. How the, how the hell else are you going to gather them, right? I know. <laughs> <laughs> Jesus. Um, I if, know, right? If you're just tuning in, you're yep. listening to uh, From the Forest. Tonight's topic is restoring oak and chestnut with USDA's Dr. Stacy Clark. We're going to take a break, but up next we got more questions about the success for oak and chestnut and uh, some active forest management and planting that can occur to uh, perpetuate these two tree species.
favorite beetle and this is from the forest every wednesday 6 to 7 p.m talk about a different forest related topic with ryan and john tonight's topic is restoring oak and chestnut with usda's dr stacy clark so stacy uh what are the conditions that we're looking to create that foster oak and chestnut well i think um you have to have, and that's, that's a really good question because that's something that we don't have a lot of research on and is, you know, what are the specific sites that we should be trying to do uh, oak restoration on um, or American chestnut restoration on? That's kind of a void, um, quite frankly, in the research. Uh, there's been a little bit of it with modeling and, and things like that, um, but, you know, all we really know at this point is you need probably a site that's kind of mediocre, moderate productivity for oak uh, because if you go too poor in quality, you know, you're going to get oak anyway, um, so no matter kind of what you do. Um, and if you go too high in quality, you're really probably wasting a lot of resources fighting against the poplar, fighting against the birch to get your oak species to be competitive. So it's kind of that middle ground that's kind of the sweet spot that you're looking for and unfortunately we just don't have a good you know prescription for to tell people you know exactly what that is and it's probably going to vary you know region to region um and even within regions you know like in where i am you know you've got the blue ridge mountains and the Cumberland plateau and elevational differences and so it may be different looking at something three thousand feet above above 3,000 feet versus, you know, more, you know, close to 800 feet. Um, so with American chestnut, you know, we really don't know. And <laughs> we do have a lot of historical accounts that indicate it was probably also most competitive on those kind of moderate intermediate sites. Do you have any, you know, for us northern types up here where we – it's more simple than what you guys have down there. We we pretty much have three types of oaks, red oak, white oak, and chestnut oak. And of those oaks, the most shade tolerant, we have red oak. And mm-hmm. so do you have any, you know, conditions to say down there that you've studied between fostering one of those three over the others? Yeah. Yeah, I think in terms of uh, planting species um, like oak, we have the most research on northern red oak, and it's probably the most, uh, mesic oak species and that we studied in terms of, you know, the site quality it likes. So it likes kind of a wetter environment, not wet like in terms of, you know, the soil is wet, but in terms of, uh, you know, mesic uh, soil conditions in terms of 
you know, high, uh, holding water a little bit more. Um, it doesn't like to be dried out. And um, so, those, so the northern reds are going to like your more north-facing kind of cove sites uh, versus a white oak is going to like, you know, more ridgetop, uh, south or west-facing uh, sites. And your chestnut will probably grow on all of those, except it's probably going to be the most competitive um, on kind of the intermediate, so I would say, like, northwest to northeast-facing um, sites. Uh, but, again, you know, we don't really have a good feel for exactly what that looks like on the ground. Um, I do know, you know, in terms of other conditions, you need sunlight, obviously, um, to get these trees to grow and to be competitive. Um, the white oaks are more shade tolerant, so they will sit in the understory for more more time than the red oak will, which is an advantage. Um, and I will say that's probably the only advantage <laughs> to dealing with white oak. Everything else about white oak is extremely difficult. Yeah, that's um, interesting you say that because I find, like, that as they age now maybe – so you're saying – are they more shade tolerant white oak than red oak as seedlings, but less so when they older, or or what do you find down there, or whatever? They're more shade tolerant in uh, when they're when they're younger than a red oak seedling is. Okay. Um, so they don't, yeah, they don't require nearly as much sunlight to you know to stay in the system. All right. Uh, doesn't necessarily mean they're going to grow <sighs> if they're in shade, but they're going to stay in the system longer. They can survive. And what we've found with American chestnut is it's also able to stay in the system for a pretty good while uh, in, in shaded conditions. Um, so it makes it a little bit of a unique species to work with because it grows as fast as a tulip poplar. It's incredibly fast growing, but it can stand, it can withstand shade. And I don't know really another species like that, um, that, you know, grows as fast as it does, but also appears to be shade tolerant in the younger, uh, you know, age class. White pine comes to mind and up here. Oh, I mean, yeah, white it's pine, It's shade yeah. tolerant, and then as it gets older, it becomes a lot less shade tolerant. Mm -hmm. But, but yeah, white pine yeah. becomes kind of weedy for us up here, you know? It can be a little weedy here, but it doesn't grow as fast as, um, you know, like poplar does. Yeah, so, right. Huh. Yeah. All right, so... Stacey, we're, we're running out of time. We better start talking about planting and all this stuff you've been researching uh, in regards to that. Okay. So let's do it. Uh, what do you what What is this talk about planting? You know, genetics and seedlings and whatnot. And I don't think I firmly understand what you're doing there. Well, it's a, it's a it's a big process, and a lot of people unfortunately don't have a lot of the the knowledge uh, behind you know what we do. We're kind of pioneering some of this stuff and building off of older research that was done and has kind of been lost over the years. But, um, you know, if you look at pine species in the South, pine species are really domesticated. You know, you can get third, fourth generation pine. Uh, people know how to grow them in the nursery. It's no problem. You know, you can store pine seed for years and always have a seed source. Oaks and chestnut, the Gacea species in general, are extremely difficult to deal with. You don't have, you know, um, con you don't have continuous seed crops year to year. Uh, that's one problem. They don't grow as fast as pine. That's another problem. If you're dealing with white oak species, 
they germinate in the fall, uh, you know, when the acorn hits the ground. That makes them incredibly difficult to deal with um, when you're trying to grow them in a nursery uh, to get a seedling to, produce, to outplant because if, if the nursery can't get their beds ready, which is a, a problem, uh, then you're looking at seed germinating in the cooler uh, before you get it in the ground, which then decreases the quality of those seedlings or sometimes leads to mortality of those seedlings. Um, and then, you know, so we look at the acorn or the nut. We look at, you know, growing those seedlings in the nursery. The quality of those seedlings coming out of the nursery is a huge deal, and that's a lot of our energy goes into studying what is the perfect tree to plant uh, for managers and how can we make that efficient. Um, and then once we get them in the ground, you know, we look at, you know, how what's the best light environment for these seedlings and how can we make that light environment happen in terms of harvesting or herbicide or previous fires um, and those kind of things. What is What are those traits of a, of a perfect seedling? It varies by species, but generally um, most of them, you know, you want to push the size of your seedlings to the large end. Uh, so it's another difference between oak and pine is that pine are generally uniform coming out of a nursery. They're all kind of the same size. With oaks and chestnut, you get extremely variable sizes coming out of the nursery. So you have in the same family, in the exact same area of the nursery, you'll have six-inch tall seedlings, and then you'll have six-foot tall seedlings. And we don't totally understand that variability. Some of it is probably weevils getting in there and eating the acorn or nut. Some of it might be related to the size of the acorn. Some of it is definitely genetics. Um, some families grow bigger seedlings than others, um, you know, for because it's just their 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 genes. Um, and then, you know, so you have all of that to consider. And then at the when you go to lift those seedlings out of the nursery, what you're really looking for is something that has a pretty good developed root system. And again, that varies by species. White oak have very thick roots, uh, especially their tap roots, compared to a red oak, which has more thin thinner taproot, uh, and then chestnut also has thicker root systems, but they tend to put more of their energy into the stem uh, than the root systems, um, unlike an oak. And so really you're looking for a tree that's, you know, for down here, we're looking for a tree of a red oak that's between two and a half to three and a half foot tall with, you know, six or more lateral roots coming off the taproot. That's kind of your ideal looking tree. Up where you guys are, it's going to be much smaller seedlings because your growing system, growing seasons are much shorter. Um, so your nurseries can't grow seedlings as big as we can, and you may have to grow them for two years in the nursery versus we grow them for one year. Uh, you would never hold a, a northern red oak uh, seedling two years down here. You would hold maybe a white oak for two years because uh, they grow slower, and that's something we're actually studying. Right now, we're studying, you know, the difference between one-year-old and two-year-old seedlings going out into various uh, civicultural conditions of white oak. And then chestnut, they grow so fast. They're the fastest of everything I've ever worked with. And so you only grow them for one year. And they tend to be a little more easy to deal with in terms of you can plant them. They can be somewhat smaller than the oak, spe than the oak species I deal with and still be competitive. Um, so you get a little bit better, you know, a little more 
breeding room, so to speak, with the chestnut versus the oak in terms of outplanting it. What are you planting for chestnut? Pure American? Uh, we have uh, a bunch of studies that have gone in since 2009, and we planted pure American and Chinese as the control species. Um, so those are the you know the, the pure species that we're looking at. American being not blight resistant, and Chinese chestnut being um, you know pretty disease resistant. And then we've planted the backcross hybrid seedlings that have been produced by the American Chestnut Foundation and by the Connecticut Agriculture Experiment Station. And those are the seedlings that have been bred bred for blight resistance. How much you mentioned so we've all before about um, you know nurseries being around or, or orchards rather? How much do you know of cross pollination has already occurred between American and, and uh, Chinese chestnut naturally? Do, do you know that? Yeah, I mean we do have a good idea on that. Um, the Chinese chestnut has been planted in the United States for you know probably. Uh, definitely more than 100 years, uh, you know, um, Japanese chestnut was planted first, and then um, we think the Chinese maybe maybe later. But it definitely more than 100 years we've been planting Chinese chestnuts, Japanese chestnuts, European chestnuts. Um, and they don't, they're not very invasive, um, thankfully. Uh, so they don't spread very easily. There's a couple of examples of where that has happened. Uh, there's one in Connecticut, where there was a stand of Chinese chestnuts that kind of spread out into the forest, it's very rare for that to happen. Um, they just don't, they're not very competitive in our woods. Um, they don't grow as fast. They don't, you know, they don't get up in the canopy as easily. I mean, you can grow them in an orchard, no problem, you know, and keep, as long as you baby them. But uh, I don't think their pollen, it doesn't spread that far, Okay. So maybe a quarter mile, half a mile, something like that. So you can't, you don't really have to worry too much about that. Um, with my studies, we are going to cut those Chinese chestnuts out as soon as they start flowering, which they have not flowered yet. And we're looking at age like 14, 15 right now. So once you have this seedling, what do you consider the perfect site to be to put that in? For the chestnuts? Yeah. Well, we planted all of ours on what I would call pretty high-quality sites, and the reason we did that was because we wanted them to have the best capability of growing as fast as they could. So we planted them on, like, I don't know if you're familiar with the term side index, but basically that's the height of the dominant trees at age 50. Right. Okay. So if I say side index 80 down here, that's a, that's a good site. You know, so I didn't, the tree can be 80 years, 80, 80 feet tall in 50 years. If I say 90, that's a really good site. If yeah. I say 60, eh, you know, that's pretty poor. Um, so we chose site index 80 or above for all my chestnut plantings uh, to make sure they had the absolute best uh, sites to grow on. I think we could have gone lower, um, maybe site index 70, uh, you know, and they probably would have done just fine as well. I wouldn't have gone any lower than that because I think they start getting, uh, you know, they start succumbing to drought and then they start getting the blight and it weakens them and those kind of things start happening. So we planted them on pretty good sites and we did some herbicide work to keep some of the poplars and birch and uh, maples off of them in the early part of their life. And so they're really competitive um, now, but unfortunately they've, they're starting to really succumb to the blight at this point. How big of a canopy opening? 
we put these all or almost all of them in sites that were uh, commercially harvested. Um, not not a clear cut. We left about 30 trees per acre um, of overstory trees, and so it's a pretty open. These are pretty open sites. So what, lots what, of sunlight. What percentage of canopy open would you say? Like 50 percent, 80 percent? I'd say 80 percent. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Something like that. Yep. Now you could go a little lower, and that's not some. That's something we haven't looked at closely with chestnut. Interesting. Uh, because the seedlings are so limited, you know. <laughs> You have to, it's like they're gold. You know, you have to be very, very targeted on where you want to put these trees because the Chestnut Foundation produces them and, you know, they're not producing millions of them. You know, they're producing hundreds of them at the beginning of this. We were getting hundreds of, of nuts. Um, now they're getting probably thousands produced a year, but it's still not very much. And a lot of work goes into preparing a site for planting as well, so you have to be very targeted and thoughtful of where you put these trees. What about for oak? You know, just white and red oak, let's, we could stick to those. Um, what, what do you think for, for the, the good site for those and uh, light requirements? I think it's similar to the chestnut for the northern red oak. I think with chestnut you need a pretty pretty open canopy. Uh, I would say more than, uh, you know, 50% canopy opening um, for, for northern red oak. Uh, you could do that incrementally, you know. I think there's been some evidence to show that if you underplant and you remove, let's say you remove like 20% of the canopy, you underplant those trees into that, and then you come back in later and take out, you know, 50 to 60% more of the trees. That favors the oaks. However, that's kind of difficult to do on a lot of sites because, you, you know, you have to have pretty good quality timber to get the logger to come in twice. Um, so that may not work everywhere, may work where you have really good quality timber. Um, but they definitely need sunlight. White oaks, you could probably go a little bit lower in terms of the canopy opening, and that's something we're studying because there's not been much work done with white oak at all. And uh, maybe you've heard that there's a lot of interest now in white oak being uh, restored uh, because there is kind of an impending shortage, you know, um, coming. And... That's going to make uh, a lot of people unhappy, especially people that, you know, make whiskey <laughs> in Kentucky and Tennessee. That's kind of a big deal around here. Yeah, and um, I hear there's competition with, with the Chinese market for those barrels. Yeah, yeah. So, And they have to use white oak. It <laughs> right. has to be white oak. Yep, has to by law. Uh, if you're just tuning in, you're mm-hmm. listening to From the Forest. Tonight's topic is restoring oak and chestnut with USDA's Dr. Stacy Clark. we got about two and a half minutes left, believe it or not. Um, what are some tips, Stacy, if you're a landowner who already has mature oak, how to keep those? That's mainly what we have around here is, is red oak. and Or establishing younger oak. What are yeah. some tips? Yeah, I think, you know, it, it's no making a decision to do nothing is still a decision and i don't think oftentimes it's the best decision so a lot of people want to take a hands-off approach and you can do that and that's fine but you got to accept that when those oaks die out you're probably not going to get them back so i think the best thing you can do is to you know remove invasive species from your from your sites that's a that's a serious issue um, in a lot of urban areas uh, or areas where you have you know uh, wildland urban interface um, so get rid of those, you know, honeysuckle and, and those kind of invasive plant species. 
Um, and then to favor your oaks, you're probably going to want to, you know, implement maybe some prescribed burning. I know that's difficult where you guys are. Yeah. But you could also use herbicide. You could use, you know, inject herbicide into those mid-story trees to get a little bit more light into the forest floor and then take out some of your, you know, less favorable overstory trees that look like they're in poor health or trees that you just don't, that you're not interested in keeping around, you know, the trees that are less valuable to wildlife. Make some openings, plant some seedlings in there, or try to maybe fence or in other other ways shelter existing oak seedlings so you can keep the deer off of them and let them get a little bit bigger. And I think that's, you know, it's difficult to do these things, but if you keep at it, you know, eventually you might have some success, and I think the key is to keep at it, keep doing a series of disturbances to your stand, because that is probably what it's going to take to get oak back. You can't just be one and done. Right. Yeah, I agree. We have a big battle with black birch and red maple competing with um, oak, mm-hmm. I would say. Yep. But um, yep. hey, thanks for coming on tonight. I mean, uh, the show flew by, so it must have been a good one, and um, we really appreciate you taking the time. Well, thank you so much for having me. I had a great time. I'm about to go um, eat some backstraps that my husband is preparing for me from the deer we killed, or he killed. Damn, no, that's uh, good. All right, good for you. That's success. (laughs) And uh, enjoy your meal, and thank you again. All right, thank you. All right, take care. Bye. If you just missed the show, that was uh, Dr. Stacy Clark from the USDA Forest Service talking about restoring oak and chestnut, and that's all we have on tonight's show. Have a good night. Good night, everyone. WIOX is supported by you and the following underwriters. O'Connell and Aronowitz, attorneys at law since 1925 for legal representation committed to fair treatment for all. From family law to constitutional law, estate planning to criminal defense. O'Connell and Aronowitz, 518-462-5601 or oalaw.com. Korea World on Main Street in Margaretville's historic Galley Kirchie Theater. Fine jewelry, handmade in store from reclaimed gold and silver, sustainable artisanal self-care wellness and beauty products, ceramics, apparel, and things with a home, books and vinyl records. Open Wednesday through Sunday and online at Kria.world, K-R-I-A dot world. Chappie's Good Food on Main Street in Roxbury for lunch, dinner, and cocktails. And Chappie's sister restaurant, the Old Mill Steakhouse, just around the corner on Bridge Street. Chappie's open every day. The Old Mill Steakhouse, open on weekends. 607-326-7020 or chappiesgoodfood.com. Hi, this is Susan Shaw. And I'm Alan Vella. We go to New Orleans on All That Gumbo every Friday afternoon from 4 to 6. And you are listening to WIOX Roxbury. Live and local in New York's Catskill Mountains at 91.3 FM, MTC Cable Channel 20, and WIOXradio.org.